This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Register now for a schedule packed with the nation's top farmers and leaders speaking on important industry topics. All at the 2024 Top Producer Summit in Kansas City. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. The pork industry is weathering a difficult time for many producers right now. Despite those challenges, there are reasons for optimism. We take a look at some of the opportunities in the pork sector and what those trends mean for all of us. What are the domestic and international hurdles to move pork producers' bottom line back into the black? And how do those forces impact the rest of the meat industry? That's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by the 2024 Top Producer Summit. I'm a farmer that likes to learn, and of course there are a lot of options out there, both online and in person, to gain knowledge on all kinds of topics that impact agriculture and beyond. One place I'll be this winter to grow and learn is the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Each year, you can count on the Top Producer Summit to bring together some of the nation and world's top farmers and ag leaders to discuss, share, and learn from one another. It's a jam-packed schedule with topics of interest for just about everyone. And with the location central in the country, it's a place many of us can get to without a long trip. I'll be at the Top Producer Summit once again, and I hope you'll join me to get the latest tips and trends on critical topics in agriculture. Just go online to register for the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Gene Nome is a hog farmer from Ames, Iowa. He's a past member of the Board of Directors for the National Pork Board and currently a board member for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. This past year was a challenging one for most in the industry, so much so that it has been a matter of survival for some, with hopes of a better year ahead. And as Gene shares, there are solid reasons to expect the pork industry to rebound. We talked about what he sees domestically, but also some of the key drivers in the international market as he provides first-hand accounts from some of his travels with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Gene, you have certainly seen a lot, not only with your own farm, but the ability to go out and see lots of different operations, both here and, and abroad. Pork checkoff, let's just begin there. You know, a lot of producers many times think, well, how's that checkoff being used? What What's it good for and so forth? You have seen a lot of that. What areas do you like to start with to, to know that that checkoff's returning to producers? You know, I'll first by uh, start by acknowledging to my fellow producers that managing that money that they put in a kitty for use for uh, research, um, education, and promotion is not a small job. It's a big ask, and I'm not saying that I don't need to be held accountable. I'm just saying it's really a sometimes a difficult t- uh, thing to explain. In particular, when you've got cash flow and P and L problems that we've had in the last eight months in the in the industry, they're going, "Well, what are you doing for me now?" None of what we do is immediate. All of what we do is laying the groundwork for long-term demand, long-term trust and image building, and long-term education of general public about how we raise hogs and how that's important, how we use resources, and why it's really a good thing for a protein choice for Americans. As we think about those issues and challenges, some of those have been with us for a long time. Have we made progress? Do those issues continue to be the same ones? What do you see? They've always been the same. Um, however, 
the divergence of divergence of and the um, extreme nature of opinions has amplified over the last few years. Social media allows small opinions to become big kind of topics. So what we do in, in Pork Board, as an example, is we're trying to create a paradigm using the We Care program. We Care program is made up of six ethical principles. It's a framework for farmers to be able to start to measure how they impact communities and how they manage animals and how they protect the environment so that they can start telling their neighbors stories about what they're doing. And then producers can gather together and talk about how counties are doing. Counties get together and talk about our states. And when we put states together, we now have a U.S. pork uh, uh, story as well to tell. And that is really important. I've often told farmers, you know, you're going to have a reputation. You should probably participate in developing it. We Care program and that framework helps us with that. Once we have that established and we've gained trust and we've created our own image, the door is now open to really command on where we, we, uh, we own the space of taste and flavor. And we can really go after increasing demand once we have that image and that trust built up. Has pork's place in the protein palate changed over time? Or are we still having the same conversations about how it fits into mealtime, so to speak? I'd characterize that as changing. And um, I've often said to folks, you know, and you're in the upper Midwest, we're, we're uh, Northern Europeans and Scandinavians, and we have three things on our plate, a vegetable, a starch, and a piece of meat. Every meal, that's what we really, like, that's a complete meal. However, 90% of the growth in the U.S. population over the last 10 years has been in non-Caucasian um, ethnicities, Asians and uh, African-Americans and uh, Latinos in particular, Hispanics. So how do we tap into the heritage of the three ethnic groups that I talked about? You, and, and what Pork Board is doing is working on uh, what we call our multicultural program, heavily investing in understanding those. As part of the U.S. Meat Export Federation Board recently, I traveled to Seoul, Korea. And when I look and say, all right, what do they do? They don't think about a pork chop cooked to 145. Really important to me as a baby boomer, but that's not what they think about. So we have to make sure that as they become a bigger part of the population and they're growing, how do we make sure that they are connected to their heritage? What's their left side in pork? And how can we make sure we do we uh, capitalize and teach our packers and processors how to market to those, give them free competitive information. Then they can go in and with their quality and their reliability and their supply and their story can sell to those folks. As the inflation of prices, not only in food, but other items over the last couple of years changed where pork fits in the marketplace? It sure put us in a good position relative to beef. I can tell you that. Um, obviously, inflation is always important. And Maybe that impacts how people think about protein, but I don't think there's anybody that's more competitively priced um, from a taste and flavor perspective, but also price and availability than pork is. And so I'd, I don't see that as a disadvantage right now. I see that as an advantage for pork. It might be some things that people start to, to uh, think about doing something less with protein over time, but I think all of that will straighten out. We're in a good position. And if you look around, people are starting to talk about labels. In the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of that. How do I make my label simple? Fewer ingredients, really. Well, if you look at some of these alternative proteins, using air quotes, what's the list of ingredients there? And then you look at a pork loin and you say, what's the list of ingredients there? It's pork. We're, we lead the simple label program. And so 
Inflation, sure, but I think that'll level out and we're positioned well. But also the other the other trends in terms of what people are interested in food and that simple, straightforward, less ingredients, and we're really positioned well there. As a pork producer, what about the challenging times that we've gone through? How do we weather some of those storms and, and keep on going? Those are all individual decisions. I have a high level of empathy for what our folks have been uh, been connected to. I'm actually a contract grower, and I'm very dependent on their success. If they aren't successful, my contract is not successful. So it's really important that we figure that out. Fortunately, we're starting, if you look at the landscape over the next sort of like six to ten months, there's some black ink starting to show up. That's really encouraging. I think, you know, some of the things that we're doing in, in terms of have been doing and are doing in terms of really understanding the demand and who's the next consumer, how do we make sure that millennial moms are really connected to the value of pork and how that can be a value. What's the value of nutrition and protein in uh, in developing minds? And uh, never forgetting that, you know, we've been eating meat as humans for 100,000 years. It's only recently that carbohydrates had to be the big part, right? And uh, what have, what's happened in the last while, we talked about trends in, in weight and trends in diabetes and all that sort of thing. And what is the first recommendation you get from a doctor when you've got a diabetes? Cut out the carbohydrates, cut out the sugars, eat protein. We're positioned really well. So not discounting anything that our producers have faced in the last while. It's been, it's been a really hard time, and I have, I have um, a high level of empathy. But I think the future is bright. You mentioned that you're now part of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, not only advocating for pork, but proteins. What are you seeing in your travels? Because hopefully the marketing of one protein helps all proteins out there. Yeah. This connects back to some of the points I made about U.S. demographics and how they're changing. In September, I had the fortune to travel with the uh, Heartland Tour, which is sponsored by U.S. Meat Export Federation. And it's made up of uh, checkoff payers from beef, pork, lamb, corn, and soybeans. 22 of us. We went to Seoul, Korea and, and uh, Tokyo, Japan. point I want to make about that is you think about our positioning there. First off, Korea this year is celebrating 70 years worth of, of uh, deep relationship with the United States since the Korean conflict. They refer to themselves as the shrimp amongst whales, and the whales are Russia and China. They worry about those two folks, and as a result, even more value with the relationship with the U.S. Food has always been an important part of trade couple other things. 50 million people in South Korea, 25 million of them live in the greater Seoul metro area. Birth rates to keep maintain a population are 2.1 to 2.2 per, per uh, thousand people per year. Their birth rate is 0.7. They're young, but they're not creating the next generation. To me, with all those people living in, in the metro area, they go, well, who's going to be the next farmer in Korea? I don't think that's going to be a chosen uh, profession. As a result, how can we in the breadbasket of the world, in the middle of America, be the supplier of choice for them? And so we're positioning ourselves really well in that re- arena, and I see nothing but growth in, in that kind of export market. The other thing we do is what we learn there teaches us about what do they want for their holidays? What do they think about their cultural heritage? Pork is really critical in that, and I think we're positioned well for that as well. Other things top of mind as we look ahead to a, another season? You know, two things. I'm, uh, I'm really honored to be part of 
helping us spend wisely and gain return on the checkoff. And thanks to uh, my fellow pig farmers for helping me do that. And I want you to be engaged. Porkcheckoff.org is your resource to understand what's going on in the pork checkoff arena. And then secondly, I'd like to thank the ag broadcasters for providing us a platform to tell our story. It's really important. Without you, we'd have to shout really loud, and I think they would only think we're angry. So thanks for that. Gene, I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. In the second half of this week's show, I talked with Michael Formica, the chief legal strategist for the National Pork Producers Council. By far the biggest item on his legal agenda this past year was the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court regarding a pork production law in California that impacts the rest of the nation. With that law now taking effect in the new year, we spoke about what that means and how it could still be changed. It's an interesting look at how the judicial and legislative branches of government could both have a role in shaping the future of how some of us farm. Michael, you have talked extensively about Prop 12. I wonder if there's anything else you've talked about, uh, probably. But for those that don't know, let's just start here. Talk about what Prop 12 is and what was going on, and then we'll begin to talk about what's going on in the future. Well, so it is a, uh, a ballot initiative, a citizen uh, initiative, not passed by the legislature, but people went to the polls. In November, they voted on it. Uh, back in 2018, uh, it is the latest version of a series of ballot initiatives that the Humane Society of the United States and some other animal rights groups have been pushing on uh, animal welfare standards, uh, specifically sow housing and, and sow care. And what makes Prop 12 different than what came before is that rather than just regulating how sows are, are managed and raised and cared for, in, in the state where it passes, and they've always passed these in states without a lot of pigs, um, Prop 12 actually prevents you from selling pork into California if those sows weren't raised appropriately. And there are no pigs, so to, really to speak of, in California. It takes about 900,000 sows to produce the piglets for the pork for the California market. There's about 1,000 sows in California. So the impact of this is felt far outside of California. Uh, and California is somewhere in the 15 to 16% of the U.S. Uh, pork market range. And so it's it's, signif- it's significant. Right now, uh, the law went into effect officially on uh, July 1, uh, following a, a Supreme Court decision that went the wrong way. Um, but it's not really going to be fully implemented until January 1st. And so it's unclear exactly what the implications are going to be, but farmers, all pork that on January 1 will need to have been from an audited farm, will have to carry a certification from the state for a state-approved auditor, and um, the state's going to start doing enforcement. Talk about the Supreme Court ruling for a moment, because I think some people will say, oh, the Supreme Court will find that this is... uh, does not pass muster that will be all right. Why did the Supreme Court say no? This is this is valid. So um, you know, if you if you just look at it from a partisan breakup, say oh we have more Republicans from Democrats, but um, this isn't you know each justice is an individual person. They have their own views on any number of issues, and I I think this is a uh, and something we've been trying to stress all along that this cuts across those partisan lines differently and 
we knew going into it, our challenge, our biggest challenge, wasn't with the most liberal justices. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, most recent Supreme Court justice, actually sided with us. Um, it was with the most conservative justices because the constitutional theory that we, you know, that's existed for 250 years that we wanted to hang our hat on um, doesn't actually appear in the text of the Constitution. There's an implication that it's there, um, but the words don't actually appear in the Constitution for, I would argue, for editing reasons. James Madison talked about it, and they were trying to save space. Uh, and the result is you have some originalist, um, you have Clarence Thomas, uh, has never agreed with this. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion, has never been a fan of, of this appro- you know, approach. Um, we didn't know where Amy Comey Barrett was going to come down. Uh, she had not written as a law professor on this area, but we knew she worked for uh, uh, Justice Scalia. And so, who was an originalist, just like you know, Clarence Thomas. Uh, and so we... Going into it, um, we knew we had our work cut out with those three, um, but we were hopeful we'd have another, the other six or maybe the other five. And what's, I, what's ironic, what's frustrating about the decision is uh, we really needed to do two things. We needed to show that the law was still good law and that we had proven uh, sufficient economic harm to, to carry the day. And we won... A majority of the justices agreed with us that the law that we were relying on was still good law and that the economic harm we were alleging was happening actually was sufficient to carry the day. Um, But yet they then ruled against us um, in a very convoluted manner. There were multiple different opinions uh, that basically came down to this is really difficult, and judges maybe aren't in the best position to make a judgment here. And at the end of the day, this is a political issue that Congress has to take care of. Um, so disappointed, but also, you know, Congress has punted the ball on this many this issue, these types of issues, a lot of times, and so it's given us, uh, you know, an, an avenue to to begin putting pressure on Congress to take action. So what does happen now? I'm sure that's the question you get from everyone because this is looming. So what begins to happen? Uh, so, you know, pork producers are going through, uh, uh, you know, the an economic crisis. It's the you know, worst crisis they face as an industry in generations. Uh, and so it's very difficult for, you know, for pork producers to make these conversions. Right now, I don't know of anyone who's got conversion going on. There were some who made some conversions, and so they're going to have, you know, they will have product that they can sell into California, whether it's going to be compliant and ready to sell January 1. I don't know or if that happens later next year, Um, but we don't know. We don't know how much supply there will be for the rest. um, You know, they're effectively going to lose access to the California market. They'll have the rest of the country. To sell, but uh, it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult for those that are interested. How do you keep up with this and what's going on? Because some people say, "Well, I'm just one lone producer out here, so what can I do?" Call your member of Congress and tell them that they need to act. You know, farmers, 
if you live in, you know, well, you're from Missouri. So if you live in Missouri, you've made the choice to live in Missouri and to abide by the laws of the state of Missouri. And people who want to live in California made the choice to live in California, right? And whatever happened to no, no taxation without representation, if you're in Missouri, you have no say in California politics. But now California thinks it has a say in how you live your life, how you and your family you know, manage your farm, how you raise your kids. Uh, and that's a, that's a problem. And so your me- members of Congress need to understand that. And you know, we're, we're seeing some support for that. Uh, but Congress, as everyone knows, moves at uh, you know, less than rapid pace. I appreciate the time. Yes, thank you very much. Before we close out this week's broadcast, I wanted to share a conversation I had with Maria Ziba, who is the Vice President of International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Building and sustaining demand is critical for a pork industry looking to move back into the black. We discussed some of the initiatives taking shape in the year ahead. Maria, let's talk about trade, marketing. Where do we stand uh, right now and where are we hopefully headed? Yeah, so trade is really important for our producers. We export over 25% of our production. That accounted for over $7.7 billion of pork and pork products exported to over 100 countries in 2022. This year, we're looking at having another uh, record year for our pork exports. Uh, we're up so far uh, in this part of, of the 2023, and um, we're very optimistic that we'll be able to to continue that tra- trajectory. What perhaps are the opportunities out there that we see? We're always looking for those. Yeah, so for our industry, we actually export more to the 20 countries that we have a free trade agreement than the rest of the world combined. So the opportunities certainly are in the countries that we've been able to level the playing field, reduce tariffs, and set standards on sanitary and phytosanitary issues. Our focus for international markets uh, are in Mexico, Canada, Central America, Colombia, Japan, South Korea, um, and and China, even though we don't have that that, uh, free trade agreement there. Beyond that, um, we do look forward to getting better market access into a lot of these Southeast Asian countries like the Philippines and Indonesia, which provide a good opportunity for us to expand. For the pork producer out there that may say, well, I'm just a small piece in a very large global market, what kinds of things can we do? Well, first of all, uh, talk to your member of Congress to talk to those people in your neighborhood and, and in your community who are skeptical about trade. I think that there's a lot of skepticism that it is actually beneficial. But if you look at where we are able to export and the type of product mix that we export, you can clearly see that there is that benefit for for our industry. Um, You know, if, if we were to get something like a foreign animal disease outbreak, and markets shut down, we'd have 25% more production domestically. And so that's why those those markets add that value where we're able to export products that, frankly, the U- United States consumer doesn't find as palatable and, and to bring back that value back to, to the farm. Maria, I appreciate the time. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for joining me on this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside and our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, X, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. I do appreciate hearing from you and your story ideas, so please connect with me on those platforms. 
And remember, you can hear these shows in a variety of ways at FarmingTheCountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. If you miss one of our shows, just use those platforms to go back and listen to past shows of interest. I do try to have a variety of guests to provide information impacting many parts of the ag industry and rural America. I hope the winter season is treating you well. We had about 10 inches of heavy wet snow in northwest Missouri this week and cold temperatures on the way. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Register now for a schedule packed with the nation's top farmers and leaders speaking on important industry topics, all at the 2024 Top Producer Summit in Kansas City.